0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. This feels strange to me. The last time I did this, I was seated behind a table, <laughs> but I'm doing okay. Uh, they tell me uh, I'm kind of like a Ford. I look good on the outside, but I'm rusting from the inside out. I bought one of those Ford Escapes four years ago, and the driver's side doors have completely rusted through. You can poke your finger right through them. I called Ford, and they said, eh, sorry, we can't help you. So, uh, I guess I'm now a Chevy man, and uh, I was really, you know, that stopped happening in the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, we kind of beat that, but now it seems like, I've got a Camry in the driveway that's 12 years old, not a speck of rust on it, but my four-year-old Ford is rusted through, kind of tells you, you know, what's going on. But that wasn't the purpose of my message today, to pick on Ford, (laughs) because I know Ohio is, a state that has a lot to do with uh, building vehicles. I passed the uh, Chevy cruise plan on the way over. I want to start by thanking you all for your support. Uh, it's been a very difficult couple of years for Linda and I. Thank you, first of all, for your prayers. I like to say it this way, every second of prayer makes a difference, even the ones you make at the red lights, uh, because all that adds up and it makes a difference. But we received, We have this huge crate of cards that we receive from all around the world and from many of you, but thank you for your cards and your, especially your prayers and even your financial help. Uh, Linda's medicine is very, very expensive and without the help of the church brethren, uh, we would not have been able to, uh, you know, the way it worked was if, you, if I never worked and I was indigent, I would have got the medicine for free, but because I worked and had an income, I had to pay for it. It's kind of backwards, but eventually Pfizer, the company that makes the $11,000 a month drug that Linda takes, did allow us to go on their assistance program finally, you know, after we paid a very lot of money and uh, they let us get the medicine for a while and I have to apply for that assistance program again in January. I would appreciate your prayers that they would help us um, with that. But actually, on Friday, it was exactly two years since I had my surgery, my bypass, heart bypass surgery. And some of you know, I know Bill's kept you informed and Wayne. I had triple bypass, and two of the bypasses have failed. So they had me back in, and they put a stent in there. And I look okay, but I can't do much because the oxygen in my system is limited to just that one blood vessel that's working at my heart now. So in March, we're hoping to get me back in to put another stent in with a specialist who can do the particular type of procedure that I need. And once I get that done, I'm hopeful that I'll be able to uh, do things like rake leaves and shovel snow and walk around the block. But I can't do much of that right now. But I do remember laying in the hospital when I was recuperating from the surgery and I said to myself, I'm out of gas. Spiritually, I'm just out of gas. And, um, you know, there was a calm that came over me because I could actually feel your prayers. I don't know if anybody's been in that. I know Rick's been through a lot and some of you've been through a lot, but I could actually feel you praying. I can't explain it. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, that's just me being me, you know, because I'm kind of a high strung type A personality and I have a good imagination. And I, but I, every once in a while, I would, I would just feel, to me, I could feel your prayers and the prayers of my family and the prayers of the anointing of Wayne and Bill and the prayers that the brethren were making for me all around the world. And so I recovered and I survived even though I didn't think I was going to. I mean, believe me, I had all my stuff on my desk with goodbye letters for everybody and instructions on how to take care of baby girl, my cat. You know, And I thought I wasn't coming back, but here I am. And I think the Lord allowed me to come back to take care of my wife. Because shortly after I went through my trial, my wife was diagnosed with fourth stage breast cancer. And so, you know, I want to share with you some of this trial today. And, you know, I want to talk about it uh, because it's going to match the message that I have for you today is trying to help us understand what it says in Hebrews 13, 5, where Paul writes, he says, the Lord is speaking to us, and he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You ever get into a place where you're really having a trial, and you think the Lord has forsaken you, abandoned you, which is what that word means, abandoned? Did you feel that he's abandoned you because you're going through a trial? Well, let's look at the scriptures today and see what that means. Now, originally, I think I told Bill I was going to give a different sermon. I was planning to give you a sermon on different literary types, which is kind of a fun sermon, which I've been wanting to give for a long time. But I wasn't quite ready yet with that material, so we'll save that for another time. and We'll, we'll go on and talk about Hebrews 13.5. you want to turn there, let's look at it. Hebrews 13.5, let's look at it carefully. It says, let your conversation or your conduct be without covetousness. You don't always be looking for, well, if I only had this, if I only had that, if I only hit the lottery, if I only had a promotion, or if I only didn't have this bum leg, or if I only had better vision, or if I only had a better memory, or if only I was Bill Gates' grandson. or if, if, only, if only this, if only that, if only, if only, if only. And the scriptures advise us, be content with what you already have. There is a plan. You can't see the plan as well as we would like, but there is a plan, and you're living that plan and that purpose. You know, whether you're walking inside the will of God or outside the will of God, there's a plan, and it works on both sides. You know, there's a cause and effect. There's consequences for decisions. And so he he says, be content with what you have or the situation that you're in For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And forsake is abandon. That's what that word means, abandon. Have nothing to do with you. Okay? So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. You know, sometimes if you're properly humble by life and by the word of God and by understanding the truth that is contained there, thinking of the Lord as being my helper kind of seems backwards, doesn't it? How does the boss, he's the boss, right? How does the boss be my helper? Because when, you're the, when you're the guy with the certificate, the guy who's the, you know, the assistant or the journeyman is your helper. He, he gets paid less, he picks up after the mess. You know, he's the helper. And, and the Bible describes the Lord as our helper, He says that when Christ returns, that he will gird himself as he did the night before he died and wash the feet of the apostles, the disciples. They were really disciples at that time, became apostles later. But he will gird himself when he comes back, King of kings, Lord of lords, in all of his glory, he will gird himself and make us all sit down and he will serve us. That's the example that he gives us. And Paul writes it here here that way. He says, the Lord is my helper. And I don't need to fear what man will do to me. Or you can even extrapolate to mean, I don't need to fear what life will do to me. Because the Lord is my helper. Okay, what does the helper do? If you have a helper, what does a helper do? Does a helper mean you don't have to do the job? No, you still have to do the job. He's just going to help you do the job, right? You still have to get the work done. You still have to accomplish the task. You still have to live through the moment, but there's going to be a helper there. He's going to help you get through it. So I will never leave you nor forsake you, but I'm going to help you, is what this says. I'm not going to abandon you, but you're still going to have to live in this evil world and live through what this evil world is going to bring before you, but I will help you. And helping is a whole range of things, you know, from uh, giving us a good mental attitude right up to and including outright intervention and healing. Those are all factors in the range of helping, right? And I want to share my story with Linda, with you about my wife. So I'm just getting back to being semi-normal from my surgery, where where I can drive and I can go out and I can do what I need to do as long as it didn't require a lot of physical activity. And my job doesn't. I sit at a desk all day and look at a computer. The only time physical activity is required is when I visit my stores, I work for a 7-Eleven. I'm what they call a regional environmental specialist. And uh, what I do is my job is to make sure that all the 7-Elevens comply with all the rules and regulations, federal, state, local, fire marshal, all the rules and regulations, file all the permits for 331 stores. And recently, 7-Eleven just bought all the Sunocos. So I'll be spending a lot more time in Ohio because the Ohio turnpike, Turnpike is all Sunoco. So all those stores now will be under my responsibility. That's what I do, so most of what I do is type at a computer and take email and answer questions and deal with state inspector people and calm them down when they're mad at us. So it's like a public relations job. So I don't have a lot of physical work. So I was up and around and Linda had gone to the store. We have these cats. Ask me about the cats later. Right now I have six cats. Now I'm not turning into the cat guy or the cat lady, you know. What happens is we live next to a dairy farm, and irresponsible people who have cats want to get rid of them. They think you just drop them off at the dairy farm and somehow the cows will magically take care of the cats. And the first thing the farmer does is shoo them out of there. He doesn't want them. He keeps one cat around to do, as a mouser. So they, they come to the closest house, which happens to be moi. So I own three cats, which are our pets. And we love them, and they're like our children. I have different ages, and we've taken them in and, uh, you know, spend a fortune on them with the vet. We Actually, we were thinking it was the vet that was dropping them off. <laughs> but, uh, but this, uh, two, three weeks ago now, two more showed up. And while I was trying to make a nest for one of them in the garage so I didn't have to have another one in the house, while I'm in the garage dealing with that one, I look behind me, and there's another one and I feel sorry for the animals because they can't really survive a cold winter. And so I'm learning a lot about them. So I got them fixed. I got the, the little orange kitten who is so incredibly cute. I got her placed right away. And then I have a tabby who's about 18 months old who's a female. And uh, I'm, looking, I'm looking to place her. Uh, she's she's litter trained, she comes spayed with a whole month's worth of supply and all of her shots, if you're interested, and she's very loving. Her name is uh, Bernadette. We name all the cats after the Big Bang Theory, so. So Linda was, I got off on a tangent there, and that's, that's uh, part of being 65. You'll have to deal with it. So Linda was picking up a box of kitty litter in the store, and she felt her back go. And so, Ever since that, she was sore with her back, thinking it was sciatica, thinking it was this, thinking it was that. Uh, Her doctor misdiagnosed the problem, sent her to therapy, which was excruciatingly painful. Then she said, I'm not doing that anymore. We went to see a wellness doctor. He did an x-ray and said, your wife has a broken back. I said, what? He said, L3 vertebrae is severed right in half. You need an MRI immediately. So within three days, we went down to Pittsburgh and had an MRI done. And the guy doing the MRI had a kind of a somber look on his face. So Linda said, well, can you send me the results? Don't just send it to the doctor. So a couple days later, in the mail comes a letter. It said, evidence of metastatic cancer. That's how we found out that Linda had cancer. So the next step was a breast exam over at uh, McGee Women's Hospital. They did a biopsy, because she did have a, a little bit of a lump in her left breast. And right there they told us, you have fourth stage metastatic, that means it's in your bones, cancer. So we breathed hard and went home and they set up all the tests in the hospital. And so they get a CT scan and x-rays and all these little things they do to you, you know, and uh, Linda's going, it's just madness, one after another, all these tests. So we get a a CT scan and then uh, an Indian doctor comes down after the CT scan and he says, well, you have um, small tumors in your lungs, lesions on your ribs, and you have lesions throughout all your body. And then the doctor that was seeing her at the time told me and my son, Matthew, you need to get a living will immediately, and Linda needs to make all of her important decisions. And I called Wayne, and I called Bill, and I called my sons, not in that order. And I bawled on the phone for hours. I just had to talk to somebody. And he was telling me, this was February, he was telling me that it was likely that she wouldn't last till April. So what do we do? You know, I've never had to deal with something like this. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I had to go through what I went through, and I'm barely over that, and now we have to deal with this. Has God abandoned me? Am I being forsaken? Have I turned the wrong way in my faith or something, and God says, eh, hey, you're done. We, you know, you're... We're going to chastise you. We're going to put you through it now, you know, because you're not one of my little sheep anymore. And that's the way I was feeling for a while. And I'm sure Linda was feeling that. Oh, by the way, hi, dear. She's watching. I'll try not to make this too sad for you. (laughs) Linda's watching. Anyway, so they had pretty much, they had her dead by April. So we started looking around for what do we do? We weren't going to give up, of course. So we found an oncologist, a young lady who came from Dayton, Ohio, and she set up practice in Newcastle with a local uh, hospital that was being converted from the local hospital to UPMC, Giant Goliath Healthcare System Hospital. And uh, this young lady, we met her, and we liked her right off the bat. And she oh, no, she says, we got stuff to, to help you with. She says, we're gonna give you this, we're gonna give you that, but you gotta take a blood test to see if you have the right hormones to take this medicine. And if you can do if you if you have the right hormones, you won't have to do chemotherapy. Okay, great, let's get the blood test. First good news we had was she had the right hormones, she can take the oral medicine. Okay, well let's give us some of that oral medicine. Okay, we'll get you the oral medicine. That'll be eleven thousand dollars a month, please. What? For a pill? Yeah, Pfizer iBrands. They're advertising it heavily on television right now. You take it with another drug called Letrozole, $11,000 a month. Now, the Letrozole is only $4 for a whole bottle of pills. But the iBrands is $357 a pill. You take it for 21 days, then you take, skip a week, then you take it again. And they have to ship it to you, UPS. You have to sign for it because it's worth its weight in gold. So they said, well, oh, no problem, you just apply for their assistance program and you'll get it free. I said, okay, give me the forms. I applied for the assistance program, they called me, I said, sir, no, sir, you make too much money, you don't qualify. You're just over the line. Okay, thank you very much. Now the next thing that happened is while you were all praying for us, the next thing that happened is I get a call from a lady. The first person to talked to me was kind of young and, you know, self-assured and, in charge young person you know the next person who called me was an older lady named sarah i liked her name and she says hello is this ed siliquiz i said yes she says i've been given your wife's file i says okay i didn't know we had a file what's up she says i read your file and i want you to uh, appeal the decision you do i can how do i do that and she says, okay, listen carefully. I want you to blah, 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 put a letter together. One page, no more than one page. Put this on the page, that on the page. Are you listening, Mr. Selankowitz? Make sure you put it this way. Make sure you put it this way. Don't say it that way. Make sure you do this. And she's telling me kind of the read between the lines that she's going to work this out for us. So I did what she said, faxed it in. Within two days, she called me back. Hello, this is Sarah. You've been approved. For the rest of the year, the medicine will be free. Thank you for your prayers, brother. Did it make a difference? I can tell you, I got a little bit of money saved, but I don't own a home. I rent. I had to start my career over four different times. And when you do that, you go backwards financially. And so we don't have a lot. And so that would have wiped me out in just a couple months. So thank you for your prayers, brother. And then checks started to come in from the churches that know of me, the independent churches, the CGI churches, the UCG churches, the COG churches, and the, you know, the ones whose name I can't even remember. Checks started to arrive to help us pay for what we had already paid, which was considerable because I had to pay for it in the beginning. Thank you, brother, for your prayers and your help. It made a difference. I want you to hear that. It made a difference. So now they're telling us, the eye branch, we'll see if it works, start to work. Linda's tumor marker, that's what the medical doctors call, it's it's a whole list of blood chemistry, and when you put it all together, they call it the tumor marker. Okay, Linda started out with her tumor marker was 366. We had blood work yesterday, so we're waiting on the results, but the one a month ago, or two weeks ago, that we took was 58. Normal is 38. So your tumor marker is about 38 or 40. Linda's down to 58 from 366. Now, she'll always have fourth-stage breast cancer. I learned that you never not have it. Once you get it, you always have it. It's a matter of managing it and dealing with the disease as it progresses but it looks like her body is responding to the medicine and your prayers and the intervention from our father Yahweh Rafika God our healer one of his names Yahweh Rafika God our healer so she has to take another medicine in January which she hasn't been able to take yet which is bone building. Now when we went in to see the radiologist because Linda didn't have to have um, radiation treatment, she had, I don't know, I think five or six treatments in her hips because she has tumors all through her bones. And I saw the x-rays and that humbled me to see the x-ray of your wife with tumors all over her bones, especially down her back where her back had broken And she had to have surgery in April. And she had, maybe you didn't hear this, but she had surgery in April. And we got her home and she was beginning to heal. And then her back broke open and I could see her spine. So she had to go back and go through that whole thing again. And that surgery was worse than my open heart surgery in terms of pain and suffering. So Linda went through that twice. And I lived in the hospital with her. And uh, when I came back the second time, we said, he's back, because I'm a pretty good patient advocate. I'm not real popular with Presbyterian Hospital. But that's my honey. That's my baby. And you're going to take care of my baby when I'm there, you know. So she starts on the bone meds in January. But while we were looking at the x-rays, the radiologist said, you know what, I've never seen this before. Come here, I want to show you this. So he showed me on Linda's spine, showed us, she was with me, a hole in her spine the size of a quarter. And he said, but look right here. He says, with cancer cells, you have, when when you're dealing with bone cancer, you have bone builders and you have bone eaters. Now, you've seen people that have had deformity on their face where the bones just grow grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. That's a bone builder cancer. And then you've seen other people... Whose face just erodes away and there's nothing there and there's just skin covering, that's a bone eater cancer. Linda has both. He said, Look here at this spot here. And he showed us on her spine this hole the size of a quarter. And he says, The cancer is eating it away up here and it's rebuilding it over here. He said, I've never seen that before. Thank you for your prayers. And so, you know, Linda's going through an awful situation. Now she has to take hydra. She takes morphine, and I can't think of the name of the other one. It's not Oxycontin, Oxycodone. She takes. So she's pretty much like a drug addict. Sorry, dear. We, you know, she's my my resident drug addict. I am too a little bit. I guess I take a medicine too that's like that. But she takes a lot of pain medicine every day. And that debilitates her. She would like to come and be with you because she just would like to thank you personally, but because of her back surgery, traveling in a car is very difficult for her because she has all those rods and screws in her back, and she still has all those tumors in her spine and in her hips and so forth. And dealing with the medicine keeps her pretty much bedridden most of the time. You know, we can go out to eat once in a while, And she even will do dishes occasionally and a few things like that and, you know, play with the cats that we have, millions of, no, just six. And she's doing okay. She's doing as best as she can. Now, Linda's a church kid. She came into the church when she was a little girl. Linda's mom was 96, a deaconess, died uh, a couple years ago. And Linda started the church. Linda actually met Herbert W. Armstrong and Loma Armstrong. He goes back that far. Linda goes back to the late 50s in the church. I came in the church in 1972. But Linda goes way back. She's a church kid, grew up in the church. And we wondered, did God forsake her? I watched her go through this. This was horrible. You know What I went through, I thought was bad. And Linda took care of me when I was sick. I moved my bed into the living room, bought one of those recliner chair thingies, you know, and I lived in there for six months because I couldn't really do anything or go anywhere, and I was diagnosed with PTSD, which I still have a little bit, take medicine for it because I woke up a little sooner than I should have in the hospital and all that stuff. I won't go into that, but we've been through it. And I said, well, did God forsake me? And then when we went through What Linda is going through, as we're going through it now, is, did God forsake us? You know, I'm a minister in the church. Linda's been a church kid all of her life. We've dedicated our life to the truth of the Bible and living God's way. God forsaken us? Did you ever think that? Did you ever think that when things don't go well? If God was here, if God was with me, that wouldn't have happened. No, the truth of the matter is if you were God, it wouldn't have happened, but you're not, and I'm not, yet. So when bad things happen, you think to yourself, if God was here, that traffic accident wouldn't have happened. Or Mr. Skelton wouldn't have fallen. Or Linda wouldn't have gotten cancer. No, your Bible does not teach that. And today we're going to see what the Bible does teach. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. And it says, And unto Adam he said, Because you have hearkened unto the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Have you ever eaten of the tree that God says, Don't eat of? Every hand should go up. You wouldn't have done any better in the Garden of Eden than they did. Have you done something that God said don't do? Have you neglected to do something that God said you should do? Absolutely. So read this like it's being written about you, about me, about us. Of which I commanded you not to eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow you shall eat it all the days of your life. Now we're not just talking about agriculture. You know, when my garden doesn't do well, I don't have a garden this year, but years past I had a garden it didn't cause me to be sad. <laughs> you know, disappointed maybe, but you know, I didn't weep. I wasn't sad. I don't think sorrow was the word. You know, I suppose if I needed that to eat, it would make a difference, but I don't. I can go to Giant Eagle and get everything I want. Right? But it says, in, it says you're going to live with sorrow. The joy and the gladness of the Garden of Eden was shut off, and there was an angel there with you know, a flaming sword keeping you out. You're not going back into that place. You're living in the wilderness. And it's going to be a sorry sight to see. You're going to struggle. All the days of your life shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field In the sweat of your face shall you eat bread until you return to the ground, for for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you you will return. And so he talks about thorns and thistles. Things are going to happen in your life that are going to work against you. We don't live in an agrarian society very much. We still have farms, but they're more corporate farms. They're more like factories now. But what he's saying is, Things are going to work against you in this life. You know, you never saw a snake eat dirt, right? Anybody see a snake eat dirt? Snakes don't eat dirt. But yet God says, On your belly you will go, Satan, and dust you will consume all the day of your life. He's not going to eat dirt. You're the dust. I'm the dust. Right here. For out of the ground you were taken. Dust you are, and to dust you will return. Satan is going to try to consume you with his evil in this world. Consume me. And God has not taken us out of this world. Remember when Jesus prayed the night before he was crucified? He says, I pray that you don't take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We're not taken out of the world. But Christ knew there is this battle. Right here, spoken of. There is this battle. So we need to understand... When Paul writes that God says to us in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you, we need to understand what He promises and what He doesn't promise in those words. So that we won't get into a situation when we're struggling with a trial or a tribulation, oh, God's not with me. If He'd have been here, that wouldn't have happened. No, not the case. Let's look at a couple examples of Scripture. Turn with me to Genesis 37 now. The story of Joseph, my favorite Bible character. And I'm just going to quickly go through this. We don't have time to go through the whole story of Joseph. You know the story. You know, Joseph was the favored son. He had a dream. His brothers were very jealous of the dream that he would rise up over them and have power over them. And the father gave him a coat of many colors and he gets, you know, thrown in the well and he gets sold into Egypt and all of that stuff. You know the story. But let's just go through some of the highlights. And for chapter 37 of Genesis and verse 23, and it came to pass when Joseph was come, his brother, that they stripped Joseph out of the coat of his many colors and they took him and cast him into a pit and the pit was empty and there wasn't even any water in there for him to drink. Okay? And... Judah said unto his brother in verse 26, What profit is it that we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let our, let our hands not be upon him, for he's our brother and our flesh. And his brethren were content. Then there passed by Midianites, merchantmen, and they drew up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. That was a handsome sum in that day. And they brought Joseph to Egypt. Verse 31. And they took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent the coat of many colors and they brought it to their father. What a horrible thing to do. Brought it to their father and said, This have we now found, and uh, this have we found, know now whether it be your son's coat or not. And he knew it and said, It is my son's coat. An evil beast has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. And Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloth, and he mourned for his son for many, many days. Can you imagine that? Believing that a tiger or a lion had taken your youngest son and tore him apart. Can you imagine that? And all his sons and daughters rose up and comforted him. But he refused to be comforted. He said, for I will go down to the grave unto my son mourning. And he wept for his son. Now over in verse, er, verse 1 of chapter 39. And so Joseph was brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard. an Egyptian brought him uh, of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. Notice what verse 2 says. And the Lord was with Joseph. (laughs) The Lord was with Joseph through all of this. They took his coat, a special gift by his father. They threw him in a pit. He didn't even have any water. They were content to leave him die there. But then they changed their mind and figured they could profit from it. So they sold him to the Ishmaelites. For 20 pieces of silver. Brethren, these are the fathers of Israel. These are the fathers of the tribes of Israel. And if you have never studied that, I know Mr. Watson and Mr. Hendricks cover that a lot. And they have an excellent tape program if you haven't seen it and there's books that go with it. These are the fathers of Israel. Who did this? Proof that God works with the basest of men. Proof that he does. How base do you have to be to do these things to your brother? And the Lord was with Joseph. Turn over to uh, verse 20. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison in a place where the king's prisoners were bound. And he was there in the prison. Simonus, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. So we're not done dealing with trials and tribulations, are we? He goes through all that. Okay, he's thrown in the pit. He's, tied on a, he's gagged and tied on the side of a camel with the Ishmaelites and rides into um, Egypt. He's sold into slavery. And, and, he, and he, you know, he does okay. He finds a place. He, he's doing okay. And then all of a sudden he gets thrown into prison because uh, Potiphar's wife is, had the hots for him and he decided to obey the law of God and didn't give in to that lusty moment, and so she came against him and accused him, and he's thrown into prison. When will it end for poor Joseph? But the Bible says, and the Lord was with Joseph. Right? And showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison, and the keeper of prison committed Joseph's hand All the prisoners that were in the prison, and whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. The keeper of their presence looked not to anything that was under his hand, because the Lord was with him. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He never abandoned Joseph. He was riding in that burlap bag on the side of that camel right there with him. So he's down in the pit right there with him. Now he's in the prison right there with him. He didn't deliver him from those things yet, but he still was with him. The Lord was with Joseph. Brethren, the Lord being with us, not forsaking us, is not some kind of insurance policy against trials or things that may come at us in this life. The Lord being with us is not an insurance policy against trials and tribulations. It's not. The Bible shows us that. It remains appointed once for all of us to die. You know, there's a story of a man going blind He had some sort of macular degeneration and he came to his minister and he said, God's abandoned me. He said, "Um, will you pray that God will come back and deliver me from this trial? Take it away so I can see. And the minister said to the blind man, he said, son, it doesn't work that way. I've never seen it work that way. He says, but let me tell you this. It, it seems from my experience as a minister, I've seen you know, thousands of people go through many things and he says, God almost never takes away the trial. Almost never. I can't tell you that he doesn't, but he almost never takes away the trial. But what he always does, without exception for those who are humble before him, he gives them the strength And what they need to get through the trial. And that's an important lesson that we have to to understand. God really takes, rarely takes away our trials. But if we maintain a relationship with Him, He always gives us the strength or whatever it is we need to get through the trial. To an end that is in accordance with His will. You know, when Jesus prayed, when he walked among us on the earth 2,000 years ago. He prayed over many people and healed many people, even resurrected some people who had died. But you know, if you go back and you read the prayers that Jesus offered, for instance, the prayer about Lazarus coming out, you know, he never ever asked if it was God's will. What do we do? We pray for someone and we say, "If if it's God's will, please heal him. You can quit doing that. You can quit asking if it's God's will. It is God's will. That's why Jesus never asked if it's God's will. It's God's will that we be healed. So be more positive with your prayers for healing. It's up to God as to when. It's up to God in all of the things that he helps us with as our helper as to whether you ever get to the actual point of intervention. It's up to him. He knows what he's doing with us, what he's building with us the kind of pot and vessel he's fashioning you into. You know, God rarely takes away our trials, but if we maintain a relationship with him, he always gives us the strength or whatever we need to get through the trial to an end that is in accordance with his will. You know, it was the same for Jesus himself. Look to uh, Luke chapter 22. Luke 22 And verse 41, and it says, and Jesus is getting ready the night before to be crucified. And he says in verse 41, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he kneeled down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Notice verse 43. Here, you know, can you just imagine that moment in the family of God, the Father and the Son, where they're facing something that they've been thinking about for who knows how many thousands of years. You know, when they pl- created the earth, they knew they were going to do this. Jesus, Yeshua, knew He was going to do this. The Father, Yahweh, knew He was going to do this. They knew they were going to meet this moment. And Jesus is saying, oh, wow, this is really hard. Can we change the plan? And the father says, no, can't change the plan. Won't work if we change the plan, son. You know, we talked about this for millennium. We have to do this. You have to go through this. And he says, please, if it's possible, let's change the plan. And what did the father answer? Just what I said earlier. He always answers. Verse 43, and there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Brethren, that's what we need to pray for when we're going through a trial. You can ask for deliverance. I ask for deliverance all the time. You can ask for intervention. I ask for intervention. You don't ask, you're not going to get. Ask for deliverance. Ask for intervention because it does happen, but it's not that common. What mostly happens is you've got to get through it but he will always strengthen you to get through it. He strengthened Jesus. He received some kind of strength from this angel to be able to handle a crucifixion. Jesus was assessing himself and thinking he was not going to be able to do this. But yet the Father said, you can do it. And I'm going to send you the strength that you need to do it. So he sent him the strength to get through it. Brethren, we can do this. This life will be over and eventually we'll meet our Lord. And every tear will be wiped away and there will be no more pain and no more sorrow and no more crying. All that will happen. But we've got to get through it first. And so when you get to a place in your life, when you're facing these trials and these tribulations, pray for strength ask for strength we have to ask we have to be humble to ask god knows everything we need but he wants to see if we're humble enough to ask him for that strength so john 11:42 i want to look at a couple scriptures here so he received strength from the angel look at john 11:42 now this is the story of christ resurrecting lazarus now, he really. there were two people in the Bible that the Scripture really says that Jesus had deep affection for. One was John. The other one, John sat on his lap at what the world calls the Last Supper, at the Passover Supper. John was basically sitting on Jesus' lap. Jesus had an older brother, younger brother relationship with John. And he looked out for John. He was jealous for John. He protected John from the barbs of the other guys. And John is the only disciple who was not martyred. And that bothered the other guys because they knew they were going to be martyred. John was not martyred. He had a special relationship with John. The other person was Lazarus. Lazarus was a dear friend of Jesus. Well, Lazarus died and he's resurrecting Lazarus. And here we are in verse 42. Jesus says, I know that you hear me always. He's talking to the Father. He's praying. He says, Father, I know that you hear me always because of the people which stand by it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. So he made this prayer openly and asked for the Father's involvement so that for their sake, not for his sake, because Jesus knew the Father never forsook him, never abandoned him. Now we see that he does, right? We're going to get there in a minute. But he never, at this point in his physical life, as Jesus the man, never experienced the Father forsaking him. Didn't happen. Now Matthew 27. And he's on the cross. And the Father does indeed forsake him. Okay, Mr. Ed, now you're confusing me. One minute he doesn't ever forsake you, now we're going to talk about Jesus being forsaken. Well, stay with me. So he's on the cross, and about the 9,000 hour, Jesus cried in a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, labas, sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus wouldn't say that if it didn't happen. It happened. Why did it happen to Jesus? Here's why. Jesus was paying the penalty for all of the sins of all of mankind for all time. The whole penalty. Every piece of the penalty. Part of the penalty at that moment in time was being separated from the Father. Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah chapter 59. Verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save neither his ear heavy that he cannot hear, but your sins have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Jesus paid that penalty for you and for me on the cross. And that's what's being described in Matthew 27. When the Father forsook him, he was paying that part of your penalty and my penalty. And it hurt him deeply. It surprised him. He didn't expect it. It was devastating. It was the strength that he was relying on. But the father waited till the last second out of compassion for his son. Waited for the last second and kept it as brief as possible. But he allowed it to happen because it was part of the penalty that he was paying for us. And it's done. In his words... It is finished. Now, Jesus is our high priest and our king and our God, and he will never leave us nor forsake us. He will never abandon us. Christ was fully paying the penalty for our sins, and part of that penalty was this separation, this forsaking. Now he says to us, having endured all of that, including the separation, he will never leave us nor forsake us. So being with us and not forsaking us is not taking us away from trials. So when we endure something, when something goes wrong, he doesn't promise to keep us from all those trials. But he did give us some guidance, didn't he? We'll talk about that guidance in a minute. But let me say that again. Being with us and not forsaking us is not taking us away from all of our trials. Now, I started this little game, I play with myself. I go to put something on a table and my eyes are not that good anymore and I drop. I go, if I was God, that wouldn't have happened. Or if I make a mistake in my checkbook and it's embarrassing, I didn't pay something or whatever. If I was God, that wouldn't have happened. I started doing this all day long. How many times I say that during the day? Try that. You'll be surprised how many times you say it. Stupid stuff that happens to you all day long, big, little, small. If I was God, that wouldn't happen. You know what that teaches you? You're not God. And you need to be humble before the one who is. We're not God. We're not there yet. We're still dealing with the physical world for a reason. Notice Luke 23. Some of these lessons are difficult, I I get that. But they're important lessons that need to be told. Luke 23 and verse 43. Now we're back to the crucifixion. you got the thieves on the cross, right? And the one thief said, uh, you know, they're talking on the cross. And, he, and the one says, uh, you, know, you know, he's mocking. One's mocking and the other one's saying, you know what? Uh, we deserve what we're getting. And, uh, but this man here in the middle, he's a righteous man. This should not have happened to him. And look what Jesus said to him. He said, and Jesus said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you today that you will be with me in paradise. And you've got to put the comma in the right place. He was telling him at that moment you will be with me in paradise. The way it's written in the King James is not correct. But what happened? Go to John nineteen thirty-three now. Very important scripture, by the way, brethren, because this scripture we're going to read now proves that Christ was not killed on Friday. The world says He died on the preparation day. Yes, He did, but it wasn't the preparation day for a weekly Sabbath. It was a preparation day for a high day Sabbath, and this is where you find that. But here in John 31, on the point that I'm making here, the Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not be made on the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day, important point, Besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and broke the legs of the first and the other which was crucified with him. Jesus couldn't have been any more with them than he was. He was with them and enduring what they were enduring, living in the moment. Suffering with these guys. And he said to the one thief, he said, I'm telling you, buddy, you're going to be with me in paradise. And still, the thief had to have his legs broken on that cross while he was still alive. That's hard to hear. That we're going to have to endure difficult things, even though the Lord is with us. Okay, now try enduring them with the Lord not being with you. Because that's the alternative. You know, being, the Lord being with you is going to strengthen you and give you something called his Holy Spirit. Which he calls what? He calls it the comforter. And comfort is an old word that's kind of changed its meaning over the years. Comforte. Comforte means in strength or powerfully. You see the piano is not a piano, but it's a keyboard today, but we usually have a piano. A piano is actually the short name of the instrument. It's called a piano forte. And it was designed because before pianos were invented, they used something called a harpsichord, and it made a tone, but it would only be so loud, and choirs and musicians wanted something that could be both loud and soft, so they created the piano soft forte. And now we just call it a piano. But the word forte means louder with strength. So comforter means I come to you in strength. The Holy Spirit comes to us in strength. You know, when we use the word tribulation, or think of it, we tend to project that concept onto a certain prophetic time yet ahead. But Scripture clearly shows that this life is a tribulation. I'm going to go through a couple scriptures and I want you to turn with me. Let's start over in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, where John is writing. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. John, the one that he loved, that Jesus loved with special affection, like a younger brother, like a baby brother. I, John, who am also your brother and companion in tribulation. John wrote that a long time ago. What tribulation is he talking about? He's talking about life. And back then it was really hard on the Christians. They were being mightily persecuted. How about John 16, 33? John 16.33. John 16.33. Jesus speaking, these things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. He says, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So he says he gives us a kind of peace that we can't have without his presence. Boy, I needed that when I was laying in that hospital bed. And Linda needs that. Yeah, baby. <laughs> right. She needs that Peace it's tough when you're facing what she's dealing with. Acts 14.22 Acts 14.22 And when they had, this is verse 21 And when they had preached the gospel to the city and had taught many they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of heaven. So it's What you're dealing with is preparing you for the kingdom of heaven. So you'll have God's peace if he's with you. And if he's with you, you're being prepared for the kingdom of heaven. Understand that. Embrace that. Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation... Or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. It is written, For we are killed all the day long. We are counted sheep for the slaughter. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? No one. You're not going to be separated because you're going through a trial. You're just realizing you're not God yet. You're still living in a physical world, you're still living in Satan's world. We're still living in a world that is not the kingdom of heaven yet. And it's not going to be easy to get through that time. So tribulation is all around us. For some it's worse than others, but it's by no means a measure of one's righteousness. Because you're dealing with tribulation, it's not a measure of your righteousness. You know, Christ was perfect. Look at his tribulation. (laughs) Joseph was the good son. The good son, look at his tribulation. Job was the most righteous person alive on the earth in his day. You read that in Job 1, verse 1. He was the most righteous man, but look what Job went through. He lost everything. Boils all over his body. I get a little splinter, I freak out. You know, This guy had boils all over his body. All of the apostles except John were martyred. Tens of thousands of Christians have suffered for what they believe. Was it because God forsook them? If he did, this, book's, this book tells lies. Because it says that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And it says that no one will separate us from the love of Christ. God's presence in our lives is like that angel that helped Christ to endure the cross. That's the difference, and it's a mighty, powerful difference. It's an important difference, and you don't want to be without that when you're dealing with the tribulation. You don't want to be without that, and you don't want to be without the love of the brethren and the prayers of the brethren. Praying for one another is an important thing. On my prayer list, I have 16 people with cancer. More than half of the prayer list is cancer. Brethren, that is a tribulation in our day. If you just look at cancer, heart disease, and abortion alone, we are living in a great tribulation. If you look at just those things alone, and it's isn't it just like Satan to keep it subtle and below the radar. We're living in a great tribulation. But he strengthens us. Psalm 18:1 says, "I will love you, O Lord, my strength." Psalm 29:11 says, "The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. He will come That he will come in strength with his spirit. Are we his people? That's the only question. And you have to, that's a different study and a different sermon, but are we his people? You need to be able to say yes, you need to be certain of that. Jesus, when he was asked, How should we pray? gave us the list. You know, we call it the Lord's Prayer, the world does. And I use it a whole lot more than I used to because it is the scriptural, it is scripture. I don't recite it ad nauseum like some do, but I do recite it sometimes in my mind to dispel things I don't want to be thinking about. But he told us, deliver us from evil. If you don't pray that prayer, what right do you have to expect to be delivered from evil? Because he told us to pray that prayer. Deliver me from evil. God knows what we need. He knows we need delivered, but Jesus said we need to ask for that. We need to be diligent. We need to ask for that because in asking it, there is a recognition that we are living in an evil world, as Paul tells us. Joel 2.32 talks about the prophecies of the end times. And I like this because of what it says. Joel 2.32, there it is. Okay. It talks about all the dramatic signs and so forth. But you come down to verse 32 in chapter 2 and it says, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, notice it, shall be delivered. Shall be delivered. Cancer is a great tribulation for those who are dealing with it. It is an evil. But God's Holy Spirit is pure and righteous. And it can be very powerful, but it needs to be stirred up. I pray that His Holy Spirit will broaden in the church and expand and grow and brighten and will send out sparks in the bodies of the people who suffer with cancer more than any radiation treatment ever could. And the powerful, pure energy of the Holy Spirit will irradiate those evil cancer cells. God's Holy Spirit couldn't do that. You know, Christ said we could move mountains if we had the right kind of faith. And we're healed by our faith. Jim Melzer, a lot of you know Jim, my neighbor. Jim thought he was dying three weeks ago. Rushed to the hospital. Turned out he had a gallbladder attack. That mimics a heart attack, by the way. I've had... I haven't had a heart attack, but I had a gallbladder attack, and I'd rather have the heart trouble, tell you the truth, in terms of pain. So they get him in there, and he has AFib, his heart's racing, can't. And it's been doing this for months and months and months. He's already passing blood in chunks in his urine. He's having serious problems. His organs are starting to fail from the AFib, so they can't operate on the gallbladder. So a bright doctor comes in and says, we're sending you to Passivant Hospital in Pittsburgh. We're going to give you something called an oblation. Now, there's an oblation in the Bible. It's not that. So they go down, and this is amazing to me, but they go up in through his groin with a catheter, and they cauterize a part of the muscle on the heart, and I guess the nerves that are attached there. Sandy probably knows about this. And, and it's called an oblation. And when they do that, they have control over how the heart beats. And so they brought his heartbeat down from 230 beats a minute down to 90 and the bleeding went away and I saw Jimmy's 83 and I, he never looked better and he went back to work. Because he was anointed, he was prayed for and God has a plan for Jimmy and his plan for Jimmy was not to let him die yet. He's got things he needs to do yet. Jimmy's a wonderful servant. He, he does the DVD program. He sends out DVDs to, I don't know how many churches. But I hear from people all over the world telling me they saw a sermon. I didn't even know they existed. He sends out Bill's and Wayne's and mine and anybody he can get his hands on. He sends them out. He's doing his part. So Jim was delivered. You know, one minute, you know, he told me he was in, <laughs> he had had a dream. I won't tell you the dream because it was a little personal, but he thought he was dead. And he woke up in passive in hospital, strange place, you know. No one's around, no one's on the floor, lights are turned down, and he thought he was dead. He actually got out of bed and went around looking for people to see if there was anybody alive. That's how far along in his mind he was convinced that he was done for. And now he's back to work at eighty three. His helper helped him. His father and his lord and king gave him the strength that was needed, gave him the intervention that was needed. You know, Jimmy is a special guy. So, brethren, when we think about our trials, and don't be afraid or shame, be ashamed to call it your tribulation, because that's what it is. I, I get in trouble with my fellow ministers, because I'd say if you... In the King James Bible now, if you show me where it says the great tribulation, I'll eat your Bible. Because it doesn't say that, it actually says a great tribulation in Matthew 24. But that's another subject. That's just me having fun. It says a great tribulation comes in our day. Brethren, are we in a time of great tribulation? I don't know, Wayne likes to ask a question. Is Jacob in trouble? Yeah, Jacob's in trouble, big time. Are we in a great tribulation? Medically, yes. Morally, yes. Politically, yes. Uh, how far away are we from nuclear war? Yes. When did when was the last time we had to worry about nuclear war or even thought about it? Yes. Right. Veterans. I mean, died in Korea. I don't really know what the toll was for Korea. But here we are, back again in Korea. And what are they saying? In the first 20 minutes, if that thing explodes, 100,000 people die in the first 20 minutes. That's the kind of weapons we have now. And that's just the conventional ones. That's not even the nuclear arsenal that, that, that exists around that area. Brethren, he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. My purpose today was to help you understand what that means so that you will be diligent in praying, deliver us from evil. You'll be diligent in praying for one another and be diligent in asking for prayer when you need it. And that we will recognize that he never leaves us nor forsake us, but we have to do our part.